So um, it's interesting to introduce ourselves and to have a self to introduce. <laughs> so I, I've been thinking a little bit about self-care um, and how you care for a self that doesn't inherently exist. What, what does that mean? How do we put together the idea of um, impermanence of self? and non-duality between self and other with the tangible reality that many of us experience a sense of self and act from that basis and I, I certainly do um, <clears throat> so you know I think writers are often admonished to write about something they know uh, and I don't plan to unveil anything profound, but it, it is true that I know a lot about what it means to have a self. And, you know, I think on average, if you were to ask me, I would say I'm a selfish person. Um, but what I've been playing with in the last year, maybe two years, is even those words, you know, selfish, um, selfless, it sets up this uh, dichotomy that that is itself uh, extreme. So I've been playing a little more with self-less, like less self, and self-ish. Like, yeah, ish, a little selfie. <laughs> um, but not necessarily that there's this stark divide. And this is all about you versus this is all about me. Um, so self-ish versus self-less um, is, is a distinction that I've been playing with. But I think, you know, this is like pretty close to the interface of just consciousness for me. Um, and so I, I wanted to start by kind of raising for a collective consideration how we distinguish waking life from a dream and what really makes being awake different from dreaming. Is it only that when we're awake, our experience depends on external causes and conditions? Know we're here. You're hearing my voice, and so on. I guess probably not. You know, in sleep too, there's a chaotic progression. <laughs> Dreams unfold in a strange way, and they're also subject to you know what happened the previous day, um, the temperature of the room, other factors like that. And yet, it's pretty easy for us to draw this boundary between waking and sleeping. And for me, I guess it's most striking when I have a dream that's upsetting or strange in some way. Like I had a, a dream a few weeks ago that our younger son Kieran died um, and that uh, his ghost was, I, I was the only one that could see him and, um, and it was very sudden and it was very upsetting. In the dream I was upset and I woke up and I was you know, kind of coping with this intense experience. And that, that's on the high end of, at least for me, intense dreams. But, you know, maybe an hour later, it was gone. And maybe even five minutes into it, the intensity of that experience had, had diminished. Um, so what made it easier for that to go away than all the normal emotional baggage that I carry with myself about, you know, this is a conflict I'm having with, uh, you know, projects at work, and this is, you know, a conversation I need to have and negotiate with this person. Those things I can carry around for much longer, and it's much harder to release, even though, in principle, you know, the death of a child is a gargantuan experience, but it didn't 
happen. It wasn't real. Um, for me, another example is, is falling in love. Um, like I can still remember very clearly falling in love with my wife, uh, which is now like 18 years ago. Um, and that one of the most powerful parts of that experience was truly the sense of uh, oneness or the kind of almost electricity of the connection. Like I remember sitting with her and we were sitting so close and yet it didn't feel close enough. So we're kind of entwined with each other having a conversation like this. Uh, and yet I remember having the experience of like, well, I still feel kind of separated. <laughs> like, why, why can't we get closer? Um, and that's, that's a powerful experience because it actually starts to dissolve the boundary between yourself and the other person. And there were times when I wasn't really clear on who was who and what was happening. And um, yeah, it still, it still stands out. As you move a little further out in terms of social distance, you know, I think it's true that when somebody in my family is hurting emotionally, physically, that, that I experience that personally as well. Um, <clears throat> and that that's... It's more accessible to me. I have, you know, decades of experience with my parents, for example, and kind of know what their lives have, have been like. So we're, when we're in those experiences, we are starting to play with the self-other distinction. Like, I'm sitting so close that, you know, we're almost one. Or, you know, I know my parents well enough that I can embody their experiences myself. Um, but... As with much human experience, we soon come to realize we're not literally the same as the other person. And that can be a source of a lot of suffering. Um, so I should maybe have a quick sidebar here that I think most of you know I'm trained as a psychologist. <clears throat> and so I want to be careful to say this is not my uh, psychologist hat that I'm wearing today. But it, it is influenced by that perspective. Um, so in that vein, there's a, a very well-known um, psychoanalytic thinker, Otto Kernberg, talks about narcissistic love. Um, and he describes that as, as the desire for the other to become part of our ego, to make somebody else a part of ourself, and in a way to uniquely affiliate with someone else who is as wonderful as we are. Um, that that's the idea of narcissistic love. And you can probably imagine... Um, somebody else you may have met in your life who has this view. And yet, in a way, I think all of us have this view at some degree, or to some degree, um, that we might have this idea that the other person is becoming part of ourself, that um, we're taking them in and almost accepting them because they are as special as we want them to be or as we see ourselves to be. So at the extreme, you know, it, it's common that this will lead somebody else to fall off the pedestal that you put them on. I think this person is so wonderful, we're sitting so close, you know, I want to be even closer. And yet, you know, three months later, maybe you're having an argument with the person and saying, you don't understand me at all, and I feel invalidated by you. And um, So I think it's interesting that those, those distinctions of, in a way, breaking down the wall between self and other, but then also realizing that sometimes when you do that, it's a pedestal, and that that itself is about you. It's your, yourself getting in the way. Makes you wonder, well, why were they there in, in the first place? Why did I put this person in this elevated position? And I think in a Buddhist view, we, we 
think of this as it emerging from a really deluded sense of self, the importance of self, and even a distinction between worthy and unworthy people in our lives. You know, you're, you're my friend, you're good, you're my enemy, you're bad. Um, and so there are many practices that center around this distinction, like metta practice, loving kindness. We work on dissolving that self under other boundary, going from something easy, like maybe even love for ourselves. Uh, maybe love for a spouse or a close friend and going outward from there until you know you're, you're trying to send loving kindness to people that you're actively upset with or who you disagree with um, and that's that's hard because now we have to get rid of this axis where it's about affiliation you know you're my friend you're part of me and so you can imagine that there's kind of like these two, it's like a weird Venn diagram of self and other. And it's not so hard to have love and kindness toward people we're really close to. Although they also tend to be the people that make us most angry. But as we start to separate these things, then it's much harder to see a person like a cashier at Wegmans or our current president or other kinds of people as just as worthy of our love as um, a spouse. So, um, I guess then to get to self-care a little bit more, it gets to be tricky. And it's something I've, I've been confused about for a long time that there's in the Heart Sutra and, and other places, there's this idea of emptiness, um, emptiness of self, for example. There's also the idea of no boundary or no distinction between self and other and yet, at other times, it, it seems to be the case that we're being, um, we're, we're considering the possibility that there's no self, uh, or that perhaps there's a true self. And so, um, Jack Cornfield had an interesting quote uh, in one of his talks where he said, When we look into the question of self and identity and spiritual practice, we find it requires us to understand two distinct dimensions of no self and true self. Um, in the Dzogchen lineage and um, in Bon Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, there's also an idea that the first quality of wisdom is primordially pure. So it's a little closer to like true self. So it's the idea that there's wisdom that's unstained by the ignorance of believing there's an inherent identity. And sometimes this is seen as pure light or clear light. And that that clear light is primordially pure, meaning it was never kind of uh, tainted in the first place and empty. So in um, more of the original Buddhist teachings, the Buddha really described self as an interdependent arising. So it's the cyclical process of consciousness creating identity by entering form responding to the contact with the senses, eyes, ears, nose, etc., attaching to certain forms, attaching to certain feelings, desires, images, and actions. And from that, we build a sense of self. Um, and so this relates to the five skandhas. Um, and those are form, feeling, perception, mental, mental formation, and consciousness. So the idea is that self is an active process. We actively construct this. It's not like it just gets you know, built once and for all and there it is. But instead that we're 
we're creating something that feels quite tangible from elements that are always shifting. And so if the self were truly inherently existent, then it would be permanent. Yet I have a cold today and I feel differently than I did last week when I didn't have a cold. Um, and that feeling colored my experience yesterday. I didn't want to be bothered as much because you know, I had sinus pressure. I just kind of wanted to be left alone. And yet, you know, there was no specific story that went with that other than it just felt kind of gross to be in my body. Um, so what does this, what is, what does the idea of emptiness mean? Emptiness of self. Um, I think the idea of no self, at least in my limited understanding, um, is more confusing and maybe even wrong headed. Um, because that, that's almost exactly against the ideas that show up in the Heart Sutra, that there's no being and no non-being. Um, and to lean into either one of those and say there is a self or there isn't a self is sort of, um, I think, missing the point. So in the sense of what an emptiness of self might mean, the Dalai Lama says, we all have a valid, proper sense of self, or I, but then we additionally have a misconception of that I as inherently existing. Under the sway of this delusion, we view the self as existing under its own power, established by way of its own nature, and able to set itself up. And he uses an interesting example that I think draws our attention to how our, our sense of consciousness, which is... Uh, fairly abstract and it happens so fluidly that we don't really see it but he uses uh, an, an interesting example to help us deconstruct that um, he says uh, the coiled rope's speckled color and coiling are similar to that of a snake and when the rope is perceived in the dim area the thought arises this is a snake as for the rope at that time when it is seen to be a snake the collection and parts of the rope are not even in the slightest way a snake. Therefore, that snake is merely set up by conceptuality. And it's a little bit like the, the waking versus dreaming distinction that I made. Um, that even though all the parts of the dream of my son's death were, were vivid and real, I even remember having um, the sense of touch in the dream, which is not always the case. But it was all set up by the conceptual mind sort of at work, even as I was sleeping, to generate this apparently real experience. So, um, emptiness of self, uh, I think, is the idea not of disavowing or avowing self, not getting rid of I, um, but instead detaching from the I as this solid reality from which we must interpret every incoming experience. And I guess when I think about self-care, and this is a multi-million dollar book industry, hundreds of thousands of psychologists are employed to, to help care for others and help them learn to care for themselves. So I guess it's like a, an interesting question 
what are we doing? Who are these selves we're taking care of? If they're empty, if they don't inherently exist, they're not permanent, so what do we, you know, why bother? Why don't we just give all of this up? Um, and I guess I wish that were that easy. I mean, like, that would be great for me as somebody that sees himself as more selfish. Uh, I think there are many times when I put my needs ahead of other people's um, every single day. And I think what comes to me in terms of what, what self-care might mean, um, at least to me, is that when we are living in a deluded state, which I am, of you know, having a self that has needs and desires, and this is better than that thing, and you're better than that person, um, a lot of those are very slippery, and they're constructed quickly, and they often come to me without any deep awareness. And if I attach to them, then I actually engage in pretty unskillful action toward other people. Um, so I think this has come up for me even quite recently, that on Friday, that's supposed to be my day that is mine at work, in which I'm supposed to get things done that I would like to get done. Um, and I had meetings at 8 a.m. all the way until 4.30 p.m. with about 30 minutes break. And all of those meetings called on me to make decisions and you know have preferences and push this forward and talk to that person and prepare for this. And um, I felt exhausted by the end of the day. And then as if that weren't enough, the previous night my wife had said, well, there's this meeting at, at UU, I'd like to go. Would you like to go? And I said, no, you know, I'd, I'd, just rather, I'd be happier just staying at home. It's going to be a big day and I'm going to be tired. And she said, there's also a song circle afterwards. That could be fun. We could go to that together. I said, no, I just, no, I just, I don't want to do that. And so I didn't. Um, and I, I went home after my long day and I picked up the kids from their piano lessons and I was making dinner and I thought, this is such a burden. Like, why do I have to take care of these children? And, like, <laughs> and uh, when Miranda got home, I was... <laughs> I was, uh, I'm in a choir, so I was practicing singing, which was, you know, in a way the only thing I'd done for myself the whole day. Um, and, and she said, you seem upset. I said, oh, I'm just kind of grumpy. And she said, why? Well, I, I just end up feeling Cinderella, like cooking dinner while you're off. <laughs> she's like, well, you, you know, you were invited. I was like, I know, I know, I know. But, you know, so it's like this, uh, this experience where that self, the entire day, I was, you know, giving away time to other people, making decisions. And even when my, when I had the opportunity to perhaps do something that would have been more, um, connecting with other people and um, the, even in that circumstance the self generated this impossible situation of, well, I don't want to do that but then I wasn't happy with the way things went after that um, and that's that's just thematic of my life uh, you know I think I can look back to my early 20s and, and realize I was a very independent person I had my things that I wanted to do and I was going to do them but I also was lonely, and so I'd have these difficult circumstances, like, I don't feel that close to anybody right now. Um, and so there was this situation where I really wanted to be closer to people. And um, if I look at my life in the last 10 years, especially since having children, honestly, it's kind of the opposite. It's like, 
with too much people. Like, <laughs> I can't seem to do anything. <laughs> you know, all my interests are blocked. Um, and so there's these these dualities that we set up for ourselves of, you know, what myself wants, I want to be closer to people, and then once I get that, no, I want to be away from people. Um, uh, and so I think the self-care component is having some awareness of what, what's going on and, and what level of delusion are you operating under. For me, on average, pretty high. Um, and then, well, where do, where do other people fit into this? And I guess my, my suggestion, at least for myself, is that others are, are potentially a skillful means to help us realize the non-existence of an, uh, kind of a tangible, permanent self. And maybe even more extreme would be that we can realize self-care when we take care of others. Um, and so I'm, I'm reminded of, <clears throat> like in the Loving-Kindness Sutra, let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Or Mato, you talked about the Hippocratic Oath, you know, above all else, do no harm. Um, as part of our, our meal blessing every day, we recite the four immeasurables, which are, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free from misery, may all beings never be separated from their happiness, and may all beings have equanimity, free from hatred and attachment. And so that's, um, in, in a way, that is the, the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, or the truth of suffering, that suffering doesn't come from having an I. The, the sense of I uh, exists, it, it won't go away. Um, that's not necessarily, in my view, the goal. But instead, from the tendency to grasp and reify, to cling to this is my car, this is you know my house, these are my possessions, this is my time, um, and to draw these strong distinctions between self and other. So, I think for me that other people can be a real mirror of the contents of myself and can help me wake up and you know in a way I think that some of the stories of Ananda Buddhist Buddha's uh, assistant for decades are kind of like this where you'll get kind of frustrated with Ananda because Ananda can be almost like a slow learner but then he he values Ananda so highly like this the person helps me wake up and kind of stay present um I I see my kids in that way often um like, I had another such day that was long. And, uh, um, I probably even told you guys this story. This is probably a few months ago. Where it was just a day where everybody was asking something of me. Or at least that was my experience. And I didn't notice myself feeling resentful, but apparently somewhere I was, because I got home and Graham said, uh, I'm in the middle of cooking dinner, and said, will you cut me some watermelon? And he just loves watermelon. He will eat half a watermelon <laughs> in one sitting. Um, and I just said, you know, I'm not taking any requests right now. <laughs> I had a whole day, and everybody wanting something from me, and right now I'm trying to cook dinner, and I'm just not available. And, um, you know, I wasn't, like, flaming mad, but I was irritated, and... <laughs> It was it was revealing and it kind of helped me wake up in that moment of what's going on with me today. Like 
what what story was accumulating in my mind of you know who who I am in relation to the people that I'm helping, and most of the people that I'm helping, you could ultimately say, are helpful to me. These are students in my lab, collaborators on projects. In some ultimate sense, if it's all about my self-attainment, like even those helpful acts are beneficial to self. They lead to publication or you know other things for which I'm recognized. So even those are not that far along the selfless side of the the spectrum, and yet. They can feel like I'm just giving you all my time, uh, and I'm dramatizing it a little bit. But you know, I think it's it's useful to have others in our lives to help us wake up to these um, these realities. So I guess that brings me sort of toward the end here to the idea of the path of a bodhisattva, um, and what it would mean to take care of others as a means to realize self care which ultimately, I think, is about eliminating the duality of self and other and not seeing this as my time, your time, um, but also not becoming sanctimonious about that. And for me, that's the, that's the tricky part, is I am living in a relatively deluded state, and if I just say, well, it's all empty and, you know, you're no different from me, and then I act unskillfully from that perspective. You know, I won't cut you the watermelon, or I'm going to be testy in an email with you. Um, that doesn't actually necessarily benefit me, and maybe actually actively harmful to others. And so I see this as like trying to hold the truth of non-duality of self and other, while also being aware that I'm just not there yet. And, and given that, how do I make sure that I don't ex- extend myself to the point or push my internal state to the point that I'm acting really harmfully, getting upset? And, um, you know, I, I think for me, one of the best contexts for this is, is faculty meetings. Um, you probably have many stories <laughs> yourself. Um, the, the meetings, at least in my department, are not actively acrimonious, and I think that's actually good, because uh, I, I know people whose experience is not that, but they're full of opinions. I know, like the other day, we had an opinion for over an hour about how to distribute a $5,000 scholarship, and to which student this should be awarded, and why it should go to my student, or your student, and I think what it, what's interesting is just to see all of the the egos in the room and you know what do they want out of the situation um even when we're trying to do something that is helpful to another like award a scholarship there's still so much of the self-perspective embedded in it um and so i i think for me i try to practice just sitting um and one of the acts of self-care that i can engage in is to do what i sometimes call keeping the meter running <laughs> like just Michael, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. Um, you don't even have to make a decision right now. You can just keep the meter running. <laughs> and, you know, at some point, if you feel compelled to say something, uh, ask yourself again: Do you need to say it right now? Um, that, that was, I think, it was Coben had those instructions where I think it was a series of things, and the last is 
something like ask yourself five times, do I need to say this right now? After you had already queered like six hurdles. Um, so you can understand why, why noble silence is perhaps a, a real thing. Um, so the, I think the Bodhisattva's path is where, at least I see myself as wanting to go, to generate the kind of love and compassion that motivates me to seek Buddhahood, not only for myself, but preferably even more so for the sake of others. And that involves trying to confront suffering in all of its forms. Um, but for me, especially the, the suffering that comes from wanting myself to have certain things and acting from a perspective. Um, so I guess I would encourage you in, in your in your practice to, to try and keep the meter running, try to deconstruct your own experience and assume that it's fallible. For me, that's hardest when I'm angry because I'm pretty sure you're, you're wrong. <laughs> um, and, and yet, you know, the next day I can see it completely differently. So just noticing that the fallibility is um, a profound part of our experience. Our emotions change, our perspective changes. Um, so I'll, I'll close by um, sharing one of the practices the Dalai Lama suggests for realizing emptiness of self. Um, <clears throat> he says uh, he tries to do this or something like this almost every day. And I've been trying to do that as well, although I'm sure he's more successful at actually maintaining that than I am. Um, he says, first, observe how an item like a watch appears in a store when you first notice it. Then how its appearance changes and becomes even more concrete as you become more interested in it. Finally, notice how this appears to you after you've bought it or consider it yours. And so he, I think he's suggesting we work even with concrete, tangible objects. This is my car. This is the food I bought at the store. And I, I've certainly had that experience, like even looking on Amazon for something. You, know, you start out being like abstractly interested in something. And like we bought a fire pit recently. And I started out with like, hmm, that'd be kind of cool. We have a fire pit. You can get into that. Next thing you know, it's like the most important thing. <laughs> and I'm trying to convince people that this is what we should do. Uh, so it's interesting how that happens. And he says, once you've done that, um, reflect even more so on how you yourself appear and how you appear to your mind as if inherently existent. Then reflect on how others and their bodies appear to your mind. And so rather than keeping it at the level of a fire pit, try and exercise the same kind of practice with the more slippery uh, self, which comes to us almost uh, pre-baked. It just kind of shows up. Oh, there's your experience. Um, and, and see how that appears to you and how it changes as you start to attach to certain outcomes that you yourself want, how other people appear to you in that state. Um, so I thought that was an interesting and useful practice.